Hey, this is Jonathan from pureandsimplebible.com wanting to welcome you back to the podcast. I'm recording live from Cambodia for the next several weeks, and so you're going to notice maybe a difference in the recording on cell phones and different recording devices I have over here. We're in the middle of a great series on reasonable faith, so I invite you to follow along as we jump right into the episode. Are you ready? Let's go. So Aubrey's back with me um, in a very unique way. You know, usually I'm in my studio and people are traveling, and uh, if they don't have the chance to come in, then I'll call them on the phone. But in this time, I'm the one that's traveling, and, and you're the one at home, so I've had to kind of, we're both calling in. So I've got a recording device uh, with me in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I'm over here on a two-week trip with uh, Wesley Hubbard and uh, we're doing some preacher studies with some brethren who are here. Aubrey's back at home in Tyler, Texas, so he's going to be recording on his phone and sending it to me. We're going to see how this works. It's the first time I've done it. In theory, it's going to work out all right. So bear with us as we go through these last two episodes in this mini-series on reasonable faith. So here we are at the third question, are miracles possible? If I'm looking at the beginning of this to kind of sum up these two points. Uh, I, I see that we want to believe in something that is reasonable based on evidence that's defensible. And I really liked in the introduction, uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 30, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And loving God with your mind means that you're not believing something just because somebody said so or some, that you, you don't know that it's so, so you just believe in it. Uh, on faith as this blind hope and trust, but rather it's a defensible faith, one that you're looking to give a reason for the hope that lies within, like in 1 Peter 3.15. So in the past couple episodes, we've looked at two out of four big questions. These questions are ones that really help provide um, the answer to why Christianity is the most reasonable worldview, and we've considered... Does truth exist? Looking at both the biblical and extra-biblical proofs for truth. And then we've also considered, does God exist? Looking at some of the great evidences uh, from science, from Scripture as well. And uh, I think about the cosmological argument that we talked about. Uh, I think about the teleological, the design element of it. So it's just been some really, really exciting stuff. The, the third great question, you know, after asking is, is truth possible to know uh, universally, is God, is it possible to know there is a God? Well, whenever you look at those things then uh, and you agree that those are possible, you start looking at the Bible, you're going to notice that some uh, supernatural events are happening, things that are beyond maybe natural explanation. Uh, specifically, we call them miracles. And so the third question you have in your notes, Aubrey, is uh, about miracles being possible. I think maybe if you would spend a little bit of time uh, talking about how the Bible might claim such miraculous things, it would be a good place to start. Go ahead, brother. Well, this is obviously a really important question because, as you said already, the Bible makes many miraculous claims. Um, Genesis 1.1 says it was God who created what I'll call the biggest miracle of all, when he created the heavens and the earth. And if that one statement is true, the very first statement of the Bible, 
then the rest of the Bible is at least believable and worthy of investigation. And so the question then becomes, uh, is there any evidence that Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is true? See, skeptics will try to reinterpret every miraculous passage in the Bible with some natural explanation. Uh, they'll say this book couldn't possibly be literally true because there's all these claims of miraculous events and we know that miracles don't happen. We know there has to be a naturalistic explanation for everything. But my response to that is, and I guess it's a question, what's the big deal about God parting the Red Sea or about Jonah being alive in the belly of a great fish for three days or an axe head floating or any of these miraculous things? What's the big deal about the resurrection of, of Jesus? If Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is true, then the rest of these are at least possible. Um, and I think it was this line of reasoning that, that Paul was getting at in Acts chapter 26 and verse 8 when he was speaking to Agrippa. Uh, he said, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? And so if we make that claim today that you know God has the power to raise people back to life and one day there will be a, a resurrection, um, a universal resurrection, uh, somebody might say, well, that sounds incredible. And, and Paul's response was, it shouldn't sound incredible because a God who made everything from absolutely nothing should be able to do all of these other things. In other words, if God can create life, then bringing a body back to life is easy. And Romans chapter 4 and verse 17 reminds us that it's God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though they did. And so Paul you know, could tell that uh, his audience was skeptical and so in Acts 26 and verse 25, he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul is a really good example of somebody who bases his entire faith off of, like that verse says, truth and reason. Something that I was thinking about uh, as you're making your main point is if I have already come to believe in God based on the evidences that I see that's external from the Bible, then the claim that God makes the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 verse 1 um, is not as radical as one might think. It kind of fits in with that, the previous question, question number two. Even though creation is reasonable based off of the previous questions that we've already answered, I feel like somebody might say, well, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. How, how would you respond to somebody that would say, you know, I need to see the proof of those things happening. Otherwise, it's not likely that they would happen. Well, I'm really not sure that that person would believe, honestly, if they saw a miracle, brother. Um, they might be a lot like the people in John chapter 12, in verse 37, who although he had done so many signs before them, the Bible says they did not believe him. And uh, there were the many among the rulers in verses 42 and 43, who believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, it says they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There's just a lot of examples in the scripture of people who saw miracles. Uh, they experienced them firsthand, but they refused to believe. There were uh, rulers and elders who saw Peter and John heal a man, 
and they could tell that they had been with Jesus. But instead of becoming disciples themselves, they said, well, what should we do with these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, and uh, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. That was in Acts chapter 4 uh, that I just read from. Um, I'm also thinking about the blasphemers against the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12 who attributed the miraculous healing done by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So in all of these cases, their unbelief was not because of a lack of evidence. And I think that unbelief today is not because of a lack of evidence. When someone says, if I could just see a miracle, I'd believe, I would suggest to them that we are living in the first and biggest miracle of all, the creation itself. And um, miracles, therefore, are possible. And not only that, but they're the only reasonable explanation for how we exist. In my haste to connect a point to Genesis chapter 1, uh, we looked over a very powerful uh, conclusion of what the resurrection's for. You know, we're, we're asking the question, are miracles possible? And you're making the case that if you believe that God can create the world and everything in it and the universe, then you would naturally believe some of the, quote, minor miracles, such as raising someone from the dead, you know, which is what Paul's making the case for as well. But... Uh, I'd like for you, I'm, I'm going to give a phrase, and I'd like for you to comment on it. Uh, maybe there's some scriptures that go along with it. Uh, the resurrection, this miracle of coming back to life that Jesus uh, accomplished by the power of God, it constitutes a proof of the gospel. Uh, what can we learn about that from the New Testament? Well, earlier we talked about a specific time when Paul was uh, presenting the gospel uh, to Festus and Agrippa. And in Acts chapter 26 and verse 26, he said to the king that he was confident that he already knew these things. He said, For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. And what he's referring to there is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Paul preached, he often uh, referred to that as his uh, proof that his message was true. And um, he would tell people that this was not some um, thing, as, as I said, that was done in a corner, that was not very well known. In other words, this was generally known among the ancients in the places where he, he traveled. And uh, the same thing is true today. It's a matter of uh, reliable historical uh, testimony that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because of that very important fact, um, there are some expectations on people for how we live because there's a coming judgment. And uh, that's the point that Paul made in Acts chapter 17 when he was preaching to the people in Athens who had never heard the gospel before. He uh, told them that God commands all men everywhere to repent uh, because he has given a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And so he was saying Jesus is coming back and the world is going to be judged. 
But after making that very bold claim, I think he felt like there was some sort of uh, evidence required. And so the statement that he made was this. He said, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul appealed to the established fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical reality of that event, and said, that's our proof that Christ is God's man and that he's coming back again. And so we need to be ready for the second coming. You know, uh, in the epistle that he wrote to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how he appeared to the apostles and then he appeared to uh, over 500 people and then finally to the apostle Paul himself. And so there's just a great number of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Lord in the first century, they didn't have to prove his resurrection like we do today. It was just, as this scripture in Acts 17 suggests, it is the assurance. It was a common fact. And so I, I, I'm, we kind of went out of order, but going back to that, I think it's good to reflect on the what a miracle produces for a believer. The, the miracle of the resurrection it produces faith in us because it's the assurance that the things God says actually happen because Jesus came back. I'd like to ask a question about maybe why we don't see them today. That might be helpful for people. Uh, if if miracles are true and, and you, you're claiming that they are, but then we can't see them today, uh, I think it's only natural for us maybe to pause and talk about that for a moment. You're asking why we don't see miracles today or are there modern day miracles? And it's important for the listeners to understand that what we're talking about right now are Bible miracles. We're saying that we have every reason to believe that the uh, miracles um, in the Bible are true. They actually happened. Um, but even during that time, miracles were not common. Um, somebody might think about some of their favorite uh, stories in the Bible and they include a lot of miraculous details, and so it might seem like miracles were just being worked all the time. But a careful study of the scriptures shows that they weren't that common, and uh, they, as you mentioned, had specific purpose. Miracles always were meant to confirm uh, a message. And so when God wanted people to know that a prophet was speaking for him, he would allow them to accomplish uh, some sort of miracle. Uh, Jesus' miracles prove that he really is the one who he claimed to be. Since he said that he was the Son of God, then we should believe that that's true because of the miracles that he performed, especially his resurrection from the dead. So the miracles were to confirm a message. Now, since the Word of God uh, has been completely revealed and since the Scriptures are complete, there is no more need for miracles. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about. It's how that with the completion of God's revelation, miracles were going to cease. And so I think people are right to be skeptical about modern-day miracles. There are people who claim that they can perform miracles. But um, whenever we look at those claims, the so-called miracles that people are performing today are very, very different in nature than the ones that we read about in the Bible. And so... We're simply saying that the miracles in the Bible are uh, worth investigating. And given the creation itself, which is the biggest miracle of all, and the eyewitness testimony of the Scripture, 
uh, we should at least consider the possibility of Bible miracles instead of just dismissing them um, without consideration. So, in order for Christianity to be true, Jonathan, uh, miracles have to at least be possible. And so the question is, are they? Could these things really have happened? And my answer is, well, you and I are living in the biggest miracle of all. I like the way that you end it by bringing it back to the biggest miracle of all creation, which we're presently living in today. Now, uh, that's our third question. And we now enter into the fourth question. And this one, I think, is going to be one that uh, I enjoyed our conversation the first time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to have it again. Um, these six E's, as you call them, that help us understand the great question, is the New Testament true, are just some fabulous pieces of information. And um, I might try to have them available on my website. If not, I hope people will at least write them down, these six E's that help answer that question. But uh, I kind of got ahead of myself, so let me ask it. Is the New Testament true? So why don't we just start with that before we jump into the six E's. Go ahead, brother. Well, this is a very important question because we're talking about the reasonable nature of the Christian faith. And in order for Christianity to be true, then the New Testament itself has to be true. Well, I want to thank Aubrey for joining me again in a very unique recording scenario where we're both out of the studio office. But I'm grateful for his flexibility, and I'm grateful for you too. Thank you for listening. You can come back next week to find the fourth and final episode in this series. You can also go to the website, and there you can find all previous episodes of the podcast, study resources, videos for you to use absolutely free. Until next time, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.